You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Yusin Ilonik. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, December 16th, 2021. Later in the program, we have the latest edition of Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County. Today, we welcome guests Professors Abby Stemmler and Scott Shackelford of the IU Kelly School of Business as they focus on election security. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, a volunteer with the Bloomington Community Bike Project, Jacob Breunig, discusses how the organization emphasizes sustainability. That's coming up in your daily headlines. The Bloomington Community Bike Project is a local bicycle co-op that recycles bicycles back into the community. Jacob Brunig, volunteer for the B-Town Bike Project, says affordability and sustainability are also at the forefront of the organization. So we're a local community nonprofit. We're part of the Center for Sustainable Living, and we serve a bunch of purposes. So first and foremost, our goal is to you know, create sustainable transportation, both financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable transportation here in Bloomington. We do that by expanding access to cycling for all kinds of folks, whether that is um, helping people complete repairs on their own bikes and teaching people how to repair bikes, whether that is selling um, used bikes at low cost, or through our earn a bike program where people can come in, volunteer with our shop, and then earn a bike of their own that they can then fix up. Additionally, during the peak pandemic, we had a program going where we had um, free bikes for folks who were not able to access transportation for various reasons. Um, we actually had an opportunity for people to receive a free bike from us without doing earn a bike, just able to take one, one home that day. Brunig says the Bicycle Collective operates with a team full of devoted volunteers. He describes some of the multifaceted work he does as a volunteer. Yeah, so it kind of can vary day to day. Sometimes I will work a shift with folks, one of our open hours. During those times, I will help folks repair bikes. I will assist people who are there at their earn a bike projects, and I'll repair bikes that have come in that you might get that we're working on selling. Other times, I will do work sort of when we're closed like some of our volunteers do, to repair older bikes to be resold because we finance you know, our rent and a lot of our expenses through selling used bikes as well. And then finally, I help with projects like when we'll do sort of big clean-out projects, big storage realignment projects. The B-Town Bike Project includes several programs, the Earn-A-Bike Program, Maintenance Classes, and Ladies' Night. Brunig explained what each of these programs entail. So Earn-A-Bike is definitely our most popular one. What we do is we receive donations from people in the community of bikes and everything from fully functional, ready to go to a bare frame that is badly bent. And so with these bikes, we're able to have folks who come in, they'll help us in the shop in various ways, whether that's cleaning, organization, light repair of other people. And after doing that for a shift, they're able to select a bike that needs to be repaired to be their own. Then with our help, they can fix up this bike and it can become theirs. And then additionally, once they're, you know, out riding it, they can come back to us and, you know, get help with repairs and things like that. 
Other great programs are things like, you know, we have our open nights, like I mentioned. We also have a special one, like you just heard on Ladies Night. That is Thursday nights, and it is from 6 to 9. And for folks who are female identified, just again, because spaces like the Bike Project can, you know, we want them to be welcoming to all people. And some people are much more welcome when there aren't men around. So it's another great, great thing we do there. And then finally, one more that we haven't talked about yet is kids' bikes. So we often have a lot of children's bikes. Kids' bikes are always free. They don't need to be earned a bike at all. Any child who wants a bike can always come and get one from us. We often also include a helmet with that as well. As a member of the Center for Sustainable Living, Brunig says the Bike Project wants to emphasize climate sustainability. So again, you know, biking is a wonderfully sustainable transportation, fully person-powered. And, you know, it, it hits on so many levels because obviously there's the first of, you know, biking rather than r- driving a car certainly helps with CO2 emissions. The shop itself also helps in a lot of ways as well. You know, bikes that are disused are often thrown away, end up in landfills, things like that, which is no good because frequently they can be reused really easily. Bikes are kind of a wonderfully uh, fixable thing. You can find old parts and make make a lot of not working bikes into one working bike pretty easily. The other big way is, you know, the sort of shift towards more sustainable transit sometimes requires means that folks don't have. Like our town has a lot of really wonderful local bike shops that are incredible. They sell great bikes. They have great repair services. But for some of our community members, you know, that's just cost prohibitive. So it's making sure that that's something that's available to everyone, not just folks who are able to afford um, to go to shops themselves. As the home of the Little 500 race and endless bike paths and trails, Bloomington is famously a cycling city. Brunig explains how the bike project looked at this and thought, how can we fulfill a need here in the community? Bikes are wonderful and abundant here in this town, but they can also be fairly expensive, especially right now with the pandemic affecting supply chains. And so, you know, our primary purpose is to take that barrier away, whether that's selling, you know, a used bike at a much lower cost or doing an earn a bike or even a free bike for a child or someone in need. That's our primary thing, because, again, we have we have a lot of cycling culture in this town. We also have a lot of cycling infrastructure. We have the B-Line. We have all kinds of great greenways. We have the 7th Street Path that just opened. You know, it's a really good, safe place to be on a bike. But so many of our community members are still unable to get that bike, get that initial step to get them going. Brunig says the Bloomington Community Bike Project is always looking for more volunteers. If you want more information on the organization, visit btownbikeproject.org. Up next, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County. Today, we welcome guests, Professor Abby Stemler and Scott Scackleford of the IU Kelly School of Business as they focus on election security. We turn to host Jim Allison for more. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHP. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. Very pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Professors Scott Shackelford and, and Abby Stemler of the IU Kelly School of Business. They're associated with the Business Law and Ethics. Uh, thanks, Scott and Abby, for being with us today. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Uh, great. Uh, election security. 
Uh, you know, I read your recent research paper on defending democracy, and it struck me how timely it was. Almost every day since the 2020 election, the alarm bells have been sounding about still another attack, foreign or domestic, on our election security. But what would you say are the foremost threats to our nation's election security right now? When we wrote our paper in 2020 about defending democracy, we were particularly focused on voting infrastructure and how um, ballots were actually processed and counted. Now, today, after the 2020 election and January 6th, I think our number one um, priority and threat is misinformation, especially related to the big lie or the belief that Biden uh, fraudulently stole the election from President Trump. This belief uh, in this lie is um, believed by two thirds of Republicans. As a result, we have a electorate that truly believes that the current system is broken. And this has not been repudiated by key elected leaders, both at the state and federal levels. These leaders, mostly on the Republican side, um, have not stood up for the facts. And as a result, the big lie continues and continues to be perpetuated on social media. Okay, so what do we do? Certainly the government's going to have a big role in meeting this challenge, but what about ordinary concerned citizens like, like me, for example? What can we do? Well, you know, don't just throw up your hands, right? I know it's, I know it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to be overwhelmed um, by all of this. It, it's so multifaceted as Abby did such a great job of laying out for us. But there's plenty of ways that you can be, you know, a good, a good citizen here, a good concerned citizen. That can include, you know, running for office for yourself, even as an election official, if you're, if you're so motivated. We're losing, unfortunately, a number of very highly uh, trained and qualified election officials across the country, in part because of just the enormous and, frankly, misdirected backlash toward them that we've seen um, since 2020. And they're being replaced potentially um, through, you know, uh, those of, of a certain partisan persuasion, which could undermine confidence in the 2022-2024 election cycles among some segments. So the more that we can get, you know, concerned, responsible citizens involved in this process, the more ways, the better. If you don't want to run yourself, you can also get involved in other ways, just by volunteering on election day or the lead they're up to. There's that's how that's how these elections work. If you've gone to the polls, you've interacted with volunteers. That's an easy way for you to help out in this process. And you can also get involved through groups, including um, the Election Verification Network or EVN. This is a, a leading community um, of activists who are concerned about um, our election integrity and have been working for decades now to ensure that you know the U.S. is meeting our commitments to. Um, uh, ensuring the accuracy of every vote um, uh, counting. So those are just a few ways um, of getting involved. There are plenty of others, including contacting your representatives, letting them know that you're concerned and, and what best practices you'd like to see uh, you know, put in place that we'll be getting more into uh, to do a better job of safeguarding our elections going forward. Okay, uh, let's focus just for a second on Congress and their responsibilities. I think Congress has drafted some pretty spectacular voting rights legislation. And the House has even passed some of those, but the Senate could use some friendly nudging from outside. Uh, in fact, 
we got some yesterday, I think, from the president himself. And I'm talking about December 15th, 2021, when President Biden said he declared voting rights to be the very biggest issue of the day. That's pretty impressive. Do you think we can expect Congress to step up in defense of voting rights? Unfortunately, no. Um, while the Democrats have proposed a very robust and forward-thinking um, set of rules that could really help make the ballot box more accessible, especially by eliminating those barriers that are well-documented. However, the reason why I'm not hopeful is because in order to pass this legislation, they either need to get some Republicans to agree or they need to eliminate the filibuster, which would allow them to proceed without Republicans. As a result, we're going to have um, very little in terms of national legislation. And as a result of that, states will be left to figure out what to do. And unfortunately, we've seen over 19 states pass laws that, in fact, restrict voting rights. All right. Well, let's get local then. Let's talk about paper ballots. Our own Monroe County took a big step forward in 2009 when we replaced our hackable electronic voting machines with paper ballots. And there was a big battle over it, but we finally got on it. So what can you tell us about Indiana's plan to phase out paperless voting machines by 2029? Well, you know, first off, I applaud the state legislature for laying out a timeline. We still have other states that haven't even taken that step. I think we can we can debate and reasonable people can disagree about whether or not 2029, you know, is ambitious enough. Clearly, you know, there's a cost to all of this, right? That in some cases is born and has been born, such as in 2002 with the Help America Vote Act by the federal government, though oftentimes this is left to state and even localities um, to figure out on their own. And these voting machines aren't necessarily cheap. And even when you spend a boatload, you can spend an infinite amount and not get infinite security, that's for sure. Um, so I think it's great we have a timeline, and I think it's wonderful that Monroe County has taken this affirmative step to get even ahead of that and ensure that we have uh, paper ballots involved in this process. And I think you're right to ask, you know, why is this so important and how could we do even more um, in terms of uh, why is this so important? You know, we've seen, unfortunately, time and again, um, so many ways in which our election infrastructure is vulnerable at a ridiculous amount of levels, including the voting machines themselves, though we shouldn't forget about the tabulation systems, basically the software used to count up votes. Um, the, the election machines themselves also use software, and just like any software, it can be manipulated, even if it's air gap or basically unplugged from the public internet. We've seen examples of this, such as a team from the University of Michigan which was able, able to uh, break into Washington, D.C.'s voting machines network and have um, the University of Michigan fight song play every time a vote was cast, right? Um, and the concern is if you don't have a paper ballot, forensically, it's just really, really tough to tell um, in the aftermath, especially of a close election, exactly what went down. And the reason there was so much concern about this in 2016 is there were several swing states, including Pennsylvania, um, that didn't have, um, that didn't have uh, these electronic voting machines with this paper ballot, right? So even though it was as close as it was, going back after the fact, conducting an audit um, just wasn't in the cards. So 
the fact that we've taken this step is a great, wonderful step in the right direction, but it's only the first step. There's a lot more that needs to be done um, to ensure that we're doing everything we can to layer on the checks um, in this process. And that's really the only way that I think we're going to be able to restore trust, um, which has been unfortunately eroded. And that more than anything else has been the goal of Russia, frankly, and other um, countries and groups that are seeking to undermine Americans' confidence in our election systems, not necessarily changing votes, but just undermining confidence in the process, we should keep in mind, is a, an overriding goal unto itself. So the more that we can get proactive, stay involved in this, and you know, frankly, don't let them win, um, the better. Okay, let's continue this local focus for just a moment. I'd like you to talk a little bit about post-election audits. Why do we need them? Why do we need the risk-limiting kind? What's special about that? And how do we get them in Monroe County? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, this sounds like an incredibly boring topic, right? <laughs> and on the other hand, it, it's it's become one that has an unfortunate, you know, partisan tilt to it, given what we've seen, as Abby laid out for us, after the 2020 election with, you know, very partisan audit processes, you know, still going on in some cases in states across the country. But don't don't be fooled by some of that noise. A post-election audit in and of itself, especially a risk-limiting audit, um, is not a bad thing. A risk-limiting audit is considered a best practice in this space. And there's been leaders, including Colorado, that have really pioneered this uh, for a number of cycles now. And why it's useful is you basically take a statistically significant sample of the votes that are cast and you compare those against the reported results, right? And if those two numbers mesh up, then you have a much higher degree of confidence in the overall um, efficiency um, and efficacy of the uh, of, of the election process. You really can't do that without the paper ballot. So that's why you know, consider it a two-step process. Paper ballots, we can check that box in Monroe County, at least, if not statewide yet in Indiana. That's great. But that next step of also mandating a risk-limiting audit with those results, you know, freely available, I feel like that could be an additional helpful affirmative step that could similarly restore some confidence among some segments of our population in the overall um, efficacy of the results of our elections. So far, we only have four states in the country that have both of those in place, right? I'd love to see Indiana join that contingent. Okay, thanks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Indiana University and state government. Uh, could you tell us something about Indiana University's work with the Indiana Secretary of State on this problem of election security? Well, we were honored, frankly, um, to partner with the Indiana Secretary of State's office in this undertaking. Uh, what happened was our Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research here at IU, led by uh, Von Welch, was successful in getting a grant from the um, Indiana Secretary of State's office to do a variety of things across the state, including helping local um, county election officials better understand the multifaceted cyber risks that they're facing and what those best practices are, what types of election issues, what types of tabulation systems, you know, make the most sense in this in this given context. So this grant allowed us to do a lot of, you know, tabletop exercises, a lot of role playing ahead of the 2020 election. I got involved mostly by dint of the cybersecurity clinic here at IU, which I uh, founded back in 28, uh, 2019 with some generous support from the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and the Hewlett Foundation, and our students did a fantastic job partnering with CACR 
um, in some of these tabletop exercises and role playing, um, as well as putting together a compendium of resources, especially for newer county election officials, which, you know, just aren't up to speed. Who is, right? But just weren't as up to speed as they would like to be on cybersecurity and cyber risk in particular. And there's a whole menu, a whole library of options from which to choose. So we did a, our best to help kind of distill those recommendations down to their essence um, and uh, disseminate that statewide as well. So we would love to continue to partner with the new um, Secretary of State here in Indiana on those initiatives um, because we made a lot of progress in the 2020 cycle, as was you know stated, stated by Chris Krebs at the time, the most secure election in history. But the aftermath that we've seen with January 6th, with the continuing questioning of the results, just reminds us that you know we need to do a better job at managing a lot of different aspects here. Of course, the misinformation piece, but also just informing our election officials and the public about all the different checks that go into securing the vote. Right? Uh, the more checks we can add, the better. But I think just being transparent about what's already there could also help alleviate some concerns. Okay, well, it's great to hear about IU's involvement in this matter. I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, Abby, you mentioned this uh, before, something that I call the big D, disinformation. Let's talk, let's get back to that, talk that again. Some threats just defy local solutions. And the big example for me is disinformation, both foreign and domestic, disinformation about our elections and our election systems. And my question is, how might we combat that threat? What do you think? What do you say about that, Abby? Well, we combat that threat by focusing in part on social media platforms, which are where most Americans actually get their news. Uh, These platforms allow for misinformation to be magnified in a way that is almost inconceivable to what could have been done in the pre-internet era. But unfortunately, these platforms, we're talking about Facebook, Twitter, have very little economic incentive to actually address the misinformation problem. Um, This is because the more outrageous the content, the more it sells, Um, the more eyeballs can be harvested, and the more advertising um, can be uh, purchased. Um, To that end, um, the internet knows no borders. So we can also have dangerous misinformation created by foreign actors that um, can actually pinpoint vulnerable populations to pump in those misinformation articles and posts. Um, And these vulnerable populations are ones that have lower levels of media literacy in the United States. And because we have so many people that might suffer from that, we are having an even greater portion of the population be manipulated by these uh, nefarious actors. So like another job for Congress. Uh, Let's talk about other nations. Now, we're not the only democracy in the world by any stretch of the imagination. And plenty of other democracies face threats similar to the ones we're facing uh, to, to voting rights and systems of government. What lessons might be learned from these other nations? You know, there's a lot that we can learn, both in terms of best and frankly worst practices here for both managing misinformation as well as safeguarding our election infrastructure, which again is 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 a lot more multi-tier than I think a lot of us realize. Um, that can include looking at Europe, of course, and, and Europe is doing, I, I would argue, a few things right. Um, that has included working together pretty deeply, uh, such as by passing an EU code for disinformation, which they you know, cajoled, shall we say, the 
the social media firms, the major tech companies to sign up to, which requires things like taking down disinformation in a given period of time, having a public database, boosting transparency for what other steps they're doing to ensure against the flow and spotting things like deep fakes, which are you know AI uh, techniques to make it look like a candidate um, is saying this or that when they're not you know actually. So I think that's useful. That could be um, globalized if the U.S., for example, partnered with Europe um, and some of our other allies around the world to similarly stronger those tech companies to do so. Haven't done that yet. The EU has also put together a joint sanctions regime in response to countries that sponsor misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns as well, targeting European elections, such as the European parliamentary elections back in 2018. We have not joined formally. A sanctions regime like that, if the EU, um, or for that matter, if just the NATO work together to create something along those lines, I think that could be impactful. There's a quite a lively debate right now about to what extent content moderation should form a part of cybersecurity or not. So, so far, NATO hasn't gone down that road. Um, but, you know, uh, the time might be ripe, especially looking ahead to the 2022 midterm, which are going to be here before we know it. But keep in mind as well that other countries, including some emerging democracies around the world, um, as well as some that are more autocratic, frankly, these days, like Thailand, um, is going in a direction we might not be very comfortable with, including criminalizing the spreading of misinformation and using that as a tool to target civil dissidents. Indonesia, for example, also has a cabinet-level agency that they've created um, to manage misinformation because they see that as such a, uh, a pervasive threat in that country. So there's a menu of options you know, from which to choose. I think it's telling that another advanced democracy like Australia has taken some you know, pretty proactive steps that we haven't been comfortable um, in following the lead of, including you know, requiring, for example, paper ballots across all the different territories um, in Australia, um, taking another you know, step that we might not feel as comfortable with, with empowering their election commission at the federal level to set uh, requirements, um, including things like risk-limiting audits, uh, which is, you know, has been easier to do uh, there than it has been here so far. And frankly, lastly, you know, not privatizing their election infrastructure. We rely on private companies um, in this country. In some cases, those, com com those companies aren't even based in this country um, to create our election machines um, and to distribute them for profit. Uh, and it might be time for us to think through not only are we comfortable with that model going forward? Does that make sense? Um, some counties like LA have taken it upon themselves to design their own because they've had such little confidence in those that were being, uh, you know, made available commercially. Um, and you know, this election infrastructure is not privatized in most of the rest of the world, most of the other major democracies, including Australia. So it's just important to keep keep those more fundamental questions in mind too, um, as we consider uh, the reforms that might be possible at the state and federal level. Okay, well, thank you so much, Scott and Abby. I've learned so much from you today. And to our radio audience, thanks for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, I hope you join us and distinguished Professor Edward Carmines of IU's Department of Political Science, when we talk about the recent performance by the U.S. Congress.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Becky Hill. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnock. And I'm Benedict Jones. Stay tuned for Big Talk a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 